We're in a series in John, so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And this series is called The Last Words of Jesus because now we're focusing with a microscope on the last few days of Jesus' life. So the way the Gospel of John is set up, the first half of the book is spread out over three years. The second half of the book zeroes in on the last week of his life. So we're calling this The Last Words of Jesus. Today we're going to be in John chapter 12. We're looking at the end of 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have very kindly placed some Bibles near you. So you can grab one of those black Bibles and you can open up one of those to page 898. If you see that under the chair, you'll see black Bible there. You can grab one of those black Bibles, turn to page 898. And we're calling it the life-giving king. So we have three stories here that are all weaving together this theme of Jesus coming to Jerusalem as the rightful king, but he's coming in a way that they didn't expect. He's coming in a way in which he's giving his life away to his people. And it's really profound. There was a news article that, that came out a few months ago. It was in February. It was February 7th, 2019. Uh, a mother of five was out with one of her children. Her other children were home with uh, some teenagers that were taking care of them. Um, she was already a widow. She had lost her husband to cancer a couple years before. She came home from a night out with one of her kids to find her house on fire. Her house was on fire, and so, of course, she's worried about her kids who are asleep upstairs. She rushes into the burning building because she's got to save her children. Um, her children are able to, to make it out through the upstairs windows, to climb out, and to make it to safety. Her children survived, but she died. She gave her life away in the process of trying to rescue her children. And, of course, mothering can feel overwhelming. It's not always that ultimate sacrifice, but that story is a picture of Jesus as this surprising king that gives his life away for us. He's not the king that comes in on the high horse and conquers in the way that we expect. He's the king that gives his life away. And so that image of motherhood, the image of leadership, of spending yourself for others, is, is most beautifully seen in the life and death of Jesus Christ himself. And so we're going to see this Starting in verse 45, I'm going to read chapter 11, verse 45, and kind of stop at 12, and then we'll look at some of those details, and then kind of move forward and look at some of uh, chapter 12 as well. So let's start reading chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So wh what is that talking about? Anybody remember what happened last week? If you weren't here, you could just look back to the, you know, the highlights and it's about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. So Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what verse 45 is talking about. We, we talked about it here last week. So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, raised Lazarus from the dead, they believed in him. They believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're having an official ruling council meeting, and they're worried that the Romans will take away their nation and take away their place as the leaders of Israel, right? So this is a ruling council saying, what are we going to do with this Jesus? This Jesus who keeps helping people and teaching God's word and saving people. We've got to do something about him. He's a competitor for our throne. It says here in verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. 
nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So just to put it in perspective, we've seen, if you've been with us in the Gospel of John, we've seen many times they were mad, they wanted to stone him, they picked up stones to stone him, they were chasing him, he slipped away. You remember that? We've kind of followed this idea that, that these guys in charge of Israel wanted to kill Jesus. So that's, that's not new. What's new here is they, they held court. The council of rulers came together and decided we're doing it. Right? It's official now. It's no longer just mob rule, angry men. It's now an official ruling council has, has met and said, we're going to kill Jesus. We're going to put him to death. I hope you see how this is now shifting the narrative. And this just so happens to coincide with Passover. Passover is the most important feast of the Jewish calendar. Passover is the celebration that God saved his people from slavery and oppression. Passover is the celebration in which Jews would sacrifice a lamb to redeem them, to save them. These are all very important things, all coming together here. It's all coming to a head here in the gospel for the last week of Jesus' life. He's going to present himself as king. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at it in more detail. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing here in this story. Help us to, to get our minds in it. Help us to see what you're up to. Um, God, we pray that our hearts would more clearly understand you and that we would be open-minded to your grace to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we see in the text, Jesus is presenting himself as the life-giving king. And like I said, there's going to be three stories that kind of present this in, in slightly different ways. Um, and so the first story we're going to see that we just read is that they're going to be people competing with him for his kingship, right? These Jewish rulers, they want to be rulers. They don't want Jesus to be their boss or to be their ruler. So we're going to see people competing with the king. The next story, then, we're going to see people adoring the king. It's a famous story you all know. It's Mary anointing Jesus with the perfumed oil. She's adoring. She's worshiping the king. And that's going to be contrasted with the behavior of Judas, the betrayer. And then the final story we'll look at is we'll see people calling on the king. They're going to call on him in a very official public way, to be their king. They're going to invite him to save them, to rescue them as king. So first of all, we see people competing with the king. We see that in the story that I just read, those verses about the ruling council coming together, deciding that Jesus must die. And I want to zero in on what Caiaphas says here. Look again at the words of Caiaphas, right? So the previous verse, they were worried that they were going to lose their place. They weren't going to get to lead the nation anymore. And Caiaphas says this. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And so this is really fascinating. These guys are worried about Jesus. Everybody's following Jesus. They know that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. They're worried. They're worried. It says specifically that they're going to lose their place, that they're going to lose their nation, right? There's a competition for leadership. And the leader of all the leaders is the high priest, right? This is a gathering. This is a counselor, uh, a council, kind of a supreme court of the Jews here with the Sadducees and the priests and everybody gathered together and the Pharisees gathering together. And all these leaders come together and the the leader of all the leaders, right, he says, you guys don't understand anything. He's kind of rough language, right? You guys are stupid idiots is basically what he's saying. Y'all don't understand anything. It's better for him to die for the nation. And what did he mean? Well, he was, what he meant was let's kill this, this guy that wants to be king so that we can hold on to our position and power. That's what he meant. Let's kill him. It's, it's better. The means justify the ends, right? Let, it's better to go ahead and murder him so that we don't lose our position, right? Because these people are following him and it might upset things with Rome and we might lose our power. We want to hold on to our power. They're competing for the kingship. But what does the Apostle John say? What's his little editorial comment about that? It was actually a prophecy. It was an accidental prophecy. The high priest accidentally, while trying to do evil, accidentally prophesied what we needed to happen, that Jesus would die for the nation, that he would be the sacrificial lamb at the time of Passover so that all these festivals point to this reality. This whole idea of, of competing for the leadership reminds me of a game that we played when I was a kid. It was a, a game that I really liked a lot. Uh, I was a big kid when I was younger, right? I kind of just stopped growing when I was a freshman in high school, so here I am, same size I was when I was 15. But I was a really big kid, and we would play this game called King of the Hill. Anybody play that game, King of the Hill? Basically, you find a dirt pile, and that dirt pile is your kingdom, and then you just push down anybody that tries to get up on your dirt pile, right? You ever play that game? Gorgeous game. I mean, if you're big, it's fun. It's not as fun when you're on the bottom, right? Um, and I just thought, man, this is, this is what we do with Jesus. We're, we're just like these religious leaders. We've got this little pile of dirt. We've got our empire of dirt, right, to quote Trent Reznor or Johnny Cash, whoever you prefer. I'm guarding my little empire of dirt. I'm on my little hill, and I'm, I'm pushing Jesus out. No, Jesus, I don't trust you. No, Jesus, I don't want you to be in charge of this. This is mine. I will have this. This is my little kingdom. This is my little empire. This is my life. You don't get to tell me what to do. And so it's easy for us to look at these leaders and say, man, they are so dastardly. You know, these are the bad guys in the story. They're so evil. But we we do the same thing. We compete with our king. Our king claims rights over our lives. And we're like, no, I don't don't want you to be in charge. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want to submit to you. One of the ways that I think this is happening in our culture in a, in a major kind of cultural shift that I think is stronger now than it's been in the past is this logical chain of my desires are what will make me happy, and so I've got to follow my desires. They define who I am, and when I define who I am by these desires, then I have to fulfill them. I've got to do what my desires tell me to do. That will make me happy. That will bring me salvation. That will secure my kingdom. That will make me whole. It's just this kind of strange way of thinking, which 
really historically, when you stand back and you look at the history of the world, n- no other religion, no other uh, time in history have we at such a, a wide scale said, yeah, just doing whatever you want is, is the way to find freedom and life and happiness, right? But more and more, that's becoming the worldview. Like, yeah, as if I get to be king and I get to do everything I want and every idea that comes in my head I fulfill, then I'll truly be happy. And I really want to plead with you that that's not actually the way human beings work. Um, human beings that go down that path and they just do whatever they want to end up sad and broken. I, I, I counsel a lot of them when they come into my office after years of trying that. It, it never goes well. It doesn't work out. And the flip side is much better. Instead of competing with the king and saying, I will tell you what's right and wrong. I will tell you, God, what's going to make me happy. You say, you, you tell me, because obviously I don't know what I'm doing, right? <laughs> we come to God with open hands. We call that faith and say, God, tell me, tell me what to do. You're the king. You know, you know what's right. You know what's wrong. Help, help me to, to rewire my life. Help me, help me to reorient my life as a follower of you. This prophecy is amazing because it, it shows this pattern we've been seeing a lot in John that evil men do evil things that cause real pain in their own life and other people's life, but God is so sovereign as king that he can turn it around for good. There's a really crazy verse in Acts chapter 4 where Peter is preaching, and he says, these evil men murdered Jesus, but God predestined this for the salvation for many. Now, I don't understand how God can do that. I just, I just point to that as a, as a thing of worship, right? God is so big, he can take these evil things that evil people have done and he can turn them for good. Like, like spiritual jujitsu, you know, he can flip that evil around and like he can, he can make good out of that. And so that, that draws my heart to, to trust him more. So like, God, I, don't, I couldn't do that, but you're God. So apparently God can do that. And that makes us trust him and say, okay, you're the king. I'm not going to compete with you for kingship. And that, that leads us to the next section. This next section where we see Mary adoring the king. So this is a famous story. It's the anointing of Jesus' feet with oil. Uh, essential oils are becoming real popular now in our culture. And so this is not as weird. I think 20 years ago when I taught on this stuff, nobody got it, right? Like this was weird because we used... We use deodorant and lotion. We don't use oils, but now we use oils more for stuff, right? Um, and so in this day and time, they used oil as perfume, as lotion, as soap. They kind of used it for everything. It was a catch-all. Um, they would use it to honor people, right? Um, it smelled good. And also, it's important to know there's this whole other layer of they would anoint leaders with oil, right? It was a symbolic way of kind of deputizing and crowning someone, whether it be as a priest or a king, whatever kind of leader. It was a way of signifying this person is a leader. And so when you cross-reference this story with Mark chapter 14, you see um, that she not only anoints his feet, that we'll read in this story, but she also anoints his head. And just another little sidebar, a lot of times when we read the Gospels, we'll find a story that says says a thing one way in one story, and says a thing another way in another story. It's possible for two different people to view a thing and talk about different aspects of that story, okay? So that doesn't mean that the scripture is contradicting itself. So in, in Mark, we're told that this happened at Simon the leper's house. Well, it's not told in this story. Um, and we're told he anoint, she anointed his head. In this story, it talks about his feet. Well, well, both can be true. Both can be true. So let's look at this story. Let's look at this account in John. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to 
Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So I need to pause here for just a minute. Uh, remember, Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's a part of the Jerusalem metro statistical area, okay? It's just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. He'd been wandering in the wilderness to avoid the Jews. Now he's, he's, he's coming in to the capital, basically. By coming into Bethany, he's kind of making his move towards Jerusalem. So he's back with his friends in Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Often banquets like this, there would, it would kind of be like how we do weddings. You know how if you've ever gone to a wedding banquet, you've got the wedding party like sitting up front in a big room and everybody's kind of watching them have their dinner while everybody else is having their dinner out at the little tables, right? Have you ever been to a banquet like that? That's kind of what the situation was. And most commentators believe that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were very wealthy and Simon the leper was probably a leper that Jesus had healed and probably another wealthy man. And so they're, they're having this big party and people are coming, we think, to see Jesus, the one who'd raised Lazarus from the dead, and they're coming to see Lazarus, the man who had been raised from the dead, right? So there's kind of a public spectacle here. People want to see what's going on. So Lazarus was there. Jesus was there. Verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Again, as I said, this is culturally weird for us. It wouldn't have been that weird culturally at this time. She was honoring him. She was anointing him. She was caring for him. She was blessing him, right? In their culture, these were signs of great adoration and respect and honor. But look at this. This is contrasted. Her adoration is contrasted with Judas. What does Judas do? In verse 4, it says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He was indignant. He's like, how dare you spend this expensive perfume, these expensive essential oils, how dare you spend all that on Jesus and honoring him? We could have taken all that money and given it to the poor. But what does John say here? John gives us a little editorial comment, verse 6. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, to help, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Keep it, not keep the oil she just poured out, but keep, like, keep what she's done, right? Let her keep the honor that she's given me. Let her keep this act for the day of my burial. He's connecting the dots to his burial. This is about preparing me for my burial. This is about my death. This is about me as king giving my life away. And then verse 8 is, is really interesting. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What does that mean? We've got a lot of little kind of curiosities here in the text. First of all, I want you to think about just the honor that she's giving. So 300 denarii is like a year's wages, right? So this is really expensive perfume, um, our perfume is usually not that much, right? Like my, my Axe body spray is like four bucks or something, I think, right? So I went online, and Clive Christian, I believe is his name, sells this uh, men's cologne for $435,000 a bottle. Yeah. So this is like Mary, well, really, that's more, more than a year's wages, right? Or at least it is for me. Um, <laughs> multiple years. But anyway, kind of getting us in the ballpark, 
but very experienced. Like most of us don't use this. If you do use this kind of cologne, I want to talk to you about giving. We had a little, <laughs> little thing about that earlier. But she is, she's taking something incredible. That was a joke, just in case you She's taking something incredibly valuable and pouring it out on Jesus. She's blessing him. She's honoring him. She's spending her resources to bless him. And that's contrasted with Judas. What does Judas want to do? Well, here's the tricky thing, right? Judas wants to steal. John tells us that. Oh, yeah, we found out later he was stealing from us, right? The rest of the story. Judas wanted to take. So, so here, let me, let me set this up for you. Two spiritual postures with resources, with money. It may not be money. It may be other resources you have, right? You, you might have resources of time, emotional reserves, skills, things you're good at, right? You might have muscles you can use to help people with things, right? You might have uh, talents. Whatever your resources are, we have two different postures with them. W- one posture is like Judas. The, the heart of stealing is I'm not being taken care of. I got to watch out for me. That's the spiritual posture of stealing, i got to take care of myself, right? You see yourself as a spiritual orphan. God hasn't taken care of me. My parents haven't taken care of me. My friends haven't taken care of me. i got to watch out for number one. i got to take care of myself. That's the spiritual heart of stealing. i got to do whatever it takes to secure myself. And then there's the posture of Mary. She's like blowing all this money. Why is she so generous? Because she believes that Jesus has been generous to her. Because she believes that God has blessed her, that God has given grace to her. She has an utterly different posture in the world, a posture of God's kind to me, I'll, I'll be kind to others. Jesus is good to me. What did, what did Jesus just do, right? Let's bring it in tighter to the situation. What did Jesus just do? He just raised her brother from the dead, right? So her heart is overflowing with, with gratitude and, and thanks, and she wants to adore Jesus and honor him. The heart of worship the heart of giving, the heart of Christian service, all of those things for Christians overflow out of God has given to me, so I want to give to him, I want to give to others. We love God and we love others because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. Colossians says we forgive because in Christ he forgave us first. We show compassion because God had compassion on us. That's Christianity, that sets Christianity apart from every other religion and every other philosophy in the world. It says, you do these things, and then you'll ingratiate the gods. Then the gods will have to bless you because you've done these good things. Christianity says, no, you do good things because God has done good to you. And we see this reflected in the life of Judas and Mary. So my question for you is, where is your heart? And I have to confess, often my heart wanders to the Judas side of like, I've got to take care of myself. Who else is going to take care of me? And I have to continually reset to know God. I can trust God. God's going to take care of me. It's going to be okay. And when our eyes are fixed on Jesus and what God has done for us in Jesus, when we see him through his death, through his burial, right, he's connecting the dots to his burial. This is, this is about my death too, right? And they didn't even fully understand that. He, he knew there was more to the story. When we see Jesus and see what he's done for us, that realigns our hearts to, to a place of generosity where, where we can be like our life-giving king. And that helps us to, to adore Jesus. Now, there was this last little phrase, right, um, just something to be aware of. Often, when we're like Judas and we want to take care of ourselves, we, we try to cover it up with religious language, right? So, so watch out. 
being in a religious place like a church or being around religious people or living in the Bible Belt is very dangerous because we cover up our selfishness. We cover up our spiritual orphanhood. We cover that up with saying, well, I want to be kind to the poor when really we're stealing and taking, right? And that, that's what Judas was doing. He was pretending to be a follower of Jesus. He was pretending to want to be generous when really he was taking. And so just be on guard. Just recognize that you can trick yourself. You can like cover up your own deceit and your own thinking like God's abandoned me so I got to do these things to take care of myself and then you can pretend that it's religion and that you're doing good things for other people. And then one more thing because a lot of times we misunderstand this here. He says, for the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. Um, that, that verse has been misquoted by a lot of religious people that say the poor you will always have with me Therefore, the logic is, who cares about the poor, right? Have you ever heard that phrase used in that way? That's exactly the opposite of what it means, by the way. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15. So let me read it to you in context. Deuteronomy 15, the whole paragraph is really helpful. God just hammers it again and again and again, but I'll just read one verse here. Deuteronomy 15, 11, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. God says in Deuteronomy, hey guys, by the way, there will always be poor people. So what should be your posture? You should be generous. There will all be, always be people in need, so be generous people. Reflect the character of God. So when Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, he's not saying, there's always going to be poor people, so forget them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying there's always going to be poor people, so always be generous. And he's saying, and you can also adore me. Like he's saying, that's okay. We're in a culture more and more where we're being forced to choose, right? We're being told you're on this side or you're on that side. You can't be both. Christianity says, you can care desperately about the name and fame of Jesus. And I want Jesus to be known. And I want to spend money on things like evangelism and churches and telling people about who Jesus is. And you know what else? I also want to help the poor. I, I want to do both. I want to care about both things. We, we can hold those in tension. The Bible holds those in tension. Our political parties say, nope, you can't do those two. Th you know, you got you to choose a side. In Christianity, we're told, like, hold, hold these things together. The way it's often talked about in the Christian world is care about word and deed, both. Not just one or the other. Don't just run to one side or the other. Don't run to word and say, we're just going to talk about Jesus, but we're never going to help the poor because they're lazy and bad. Right? That's one way that comes out in kind of a cartoonish way in Christianity. Or we're just going to care about the poor and then people will just intuitively know that Jesus exists because we helped them, but we're never actually going to talk about Jesus. No, the, the word is important, right? Like if we just help people, but we never preach the Bible, we never talk about Jesus, well, we're not really a church anymore, right? We're just social services, which is fine. Social services are great, but that's not what a church is. We are to talk about Jesus. We are to adore Jesus. We gather every week to adore Jesus, to praise him, to anoint him as king, to give thanks for what he's done, to have eye on his burial his death and resurrection to recognize that we get life from him and then we go out and we we spend our lives and many of you do this as, as soldiers and policemen as, as doctors and as educators you spend your life helping broken people thank you thank you for doing that because the poor you will always have with you therefore continue to be generous with them that's what christians are called to do now we can argue about how right like that's when politics comes in. Okay, well, some ways are more effective, other ways are less effective. Yeah, we can debate that. That's fine. Let's have healthy debates about that stuff. One of the books we've recommended a lot when, when we've gone to Guatemala to help our friends there, it's a book we read called When Helping Hurts, right? 
Because sometimes when you have resources, you get all twisted up in your mind, you get like a salvation kind of savior complex, and you think you can do no wrong and come in and swoop in and help people. You forget that you have a lot to learn from them because they're also made in the image of God. So I really recommend that book to you. It's called When Helping Hurts um, by Fickert. Is his last name F-I-K-K-E-R-T who wrote the book? Um, it's really helpful, right? Because there are ways to help the poor or help people that are in trouble that actually kind of make things worse, you know. Um, so do it smartly. Do it wisely. But Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you, so Deuteronomy, so stay generous. Continue to serve them, but don't condemn what Mary has done. Adoring Jesus, lifting up the name of Jesus, exalting Jesus, anointing him as king, telling people about Jesus, that's still a good and beautiful thing that we do unapologetically spend our resources on. And we want to invite you into that. We want to invite you to spend what you have to declare God's goodness through Christ. One little specific way to do that, we have a table in the hallway. Of course, give to the church. I already said that. But one specific way today to do that is Compassion International. Uh, We partner with them every year. We have a Compassion Day. We've got a table in the hallway. You can sponsor a child for $38 a month. And that sponsorship helps to give them health care, helps to give them education. And the way Compassion works, it's a really well-run organization that holds this tension together. If we want to exalt Jesus and help the poor, we refuse to separate those. We're going to keep them together. So what they do is they find healthy churches in the poorest of countries that are doing good ministry already. And then they bring our American dollars to partner with them. And that's, that's how it works. And I've gotten to visit their operation in Guatemala. They do fantastic work. I want to encourage you to either sponsor a child or just to give directly to them. You don't have to sponsor a child and write letters. You can just give money directly to Compassion International. But they're a fantastic organization that both helps the poor and also exalts and adores Jesus. Um, so the last point here, we're going to see Jesus coming in to Jerusalem as the king. And we're going to see people calling out to him as king, calling on him to save them. So look at this. Starting in verse 9, it gives a, a little kind of connecting a uh, couple of verses here in verse 9. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So here's this kind of desire to see the famous guy that was raised from the dead and the famous guy that raised him from the dead. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here they not only want to kill Jesus, they also now want to kill Lazarus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means, oh, save us. They're calling on him to save them. This is the kind of thing they would have shouted to a king to a military rescuer. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a chorus or a refrain from Psalm 118. So this was a common song that they would sing. This was one of their top 40 psalms. They would sing going up the hill into Jerusalem. It's called a psalm of ascent. So the section of psalms that were the the choruses that they would sing going up the hill to go to these feasts. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is something that kind of a It kind of connects with all who love Jesus, all who love God of the Old Testament, I should say. And so they're saying, those who come in the name of the Lord, we're going to find blessing, right? But then specifically, they're focusing in on the kingship here. See, it says, even the king of Israel. So they're saying, save us. They're connecting the song. They always sing about blessings for those who come in the name of the Lord. They're connecting that specifically with the king. 
and asking him to save them. All of that is being said in this little uh, cluster of phrases here. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The fulfillment of Zechariah 9. They also threw in a phrase here from Isaiah 40. So this is Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled as Jesus comes in as king on a cute, fuzzy little donkey, right? Um, And this isn't completely crazy for him to come in on a donkey because King David established this tradition. So King David would come in as a sign of peace after he had conquered his enemies. He'd come in on a donkey like, okay, cool, the fighting's over. I'm coming back to the city. This is a tradition of the Davidic kings, and Jesus is in that line. But it is strongly contrasted with the Roman warlords who were there, uh, you know, who had power over them at this time, the empire of the time. The Roman warlords would come in on giant war horses. And so Jesus is definitely contrasting with the warlord hero picture of the day. He, he's coming in not as a life-taking king. He's coming in as a life-giving king. They're calling on him to save him, but they don't fully understand how he's going to save them. Do you see that? And we've seen this again and again in John. And and what I want this to do is I want this to draw you in to following Jesus. Because what I want you to see is that the first followers of Jesus were not some kind of crazy superheroes that you can't connect with. These were people like you that were like, come on, Jesus, help me. My My life is in shambles. And you start following him. And then you realize it's not exactly what you thought you were getting yourself into, right? It's the same way with them. Look at this in verse, 14, uh, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Do you hear that? His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is the same way it is for us following Jesus, right? Like you can, you can now... As you grow in Christ, look back on things that happened 10 years ago, and you can be like, oh, maybe God was with me. Maybe God hasn't abandoned me. You can, you can re-envision your past, and that's what was happening with the disciples. They're calling on him to save them. They're calling on him as king. They start following him, but they don't quite understand it, right? When he dies, as we follow the story through, when he dies, they're like, oh, it's all over now. They don't fully understand it, right? The same thing happens to you. The same thing happens to me. God, save me. You start walking with Jesus. Things might be going well, and then things go really bad. You're like, well, I guess he hates me now. No, that, it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. It doesn't mean he hates you. Continue to walk with him. Continue to trust him. He knows what he's doing. He is the king that can save. He just doesn't save exactly the way we always think he's going to save. He's not the, the Roman warlord. He's the peaceful king who gives his life away for us. So his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. Jesus is going to say later on in context that he's going to be glorified through his death. Now the picture of the whole New Testament is it's it's both his death and resurrection. And, And in some ways you could even say his resurrection is the act of glorification, is the actual exaltation that happens. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. It says that Jesus gave up everything for us. He gave up everything to move into our scary neighborhood and didn't just come to live with us to be empathetic and compassionate, but also sacrificially gave his life for us, the whole package. And through that death for us as the life-giving king, that's how he saves us. He takes our sins. He gives us his resurrection life. He's, 
He's exalted then, Paul says. He's given the name above every other name. And so Paul can use this language of calling on the king. Paul picks this up. Paul takes this kind of language from the triumphal entry. Paul combines that with Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, and he says this in Romans 10. So hear these words uh, from the Apostle Paul in Romans 10. He says this, The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's quoting the Old Testament there, the Old Testament God, Yahweh, saying, if you call on Yahweh, you're calling on Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. And if you call on him, you will be saved. They were calling on him to save them. They didn't understand all this. They didn't get it. They didn't know how much they were getting. In some ways, they were getting less than they wanted because he didn't come in with the mace and the hammer and chase out the Romans, right? But they were really getting more than they ever realized. They were getting life. They were getting resurrection power. They were getting the God of the universe. Often, we just want God to heal our circumstances, right? Just heal me now, God. Just fix this. Just give me a new job. Just give me a new spouse. Just give me a new situation. Just give me new friends. Just give me a new body, whatever it might be. And God says, no, I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to give you eternal life, and I'm going to give you this life to to spend for others. I'm going to be your life-giving king, and then I'm going to call you to give your life away to others, the way I've given life to you. He's going to call us to follow him in that way. So are you calling on the king? Do you call on the name of the Lord? Romans 10, it goes on this. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for the With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Many of you are still living with the shame of your past, the shame of things that you've gone through, and you think God can't love me or God doesn't love me or he didn't love me. He says, if you call on him, you will not be put to shame. If you trust him, he will take away your shame. The story of the cross is that Jesus bore your shame for you. He says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. They're saying whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a lot of us aren't either here, right? But these are typological kind of categories that the Bible uses. The Jew is the category for the religious people. If you grew up religious, he says Jesus is for you. The Greek is a category for the pagan. Did you grow up with your you know, parents giving you a tattoo when you were five and offering you pot, you know, that kind of family environment? And Jesus is for you. Whether you grew up religious or non-religious, whether you had the white picket fence or the, the background of, of horrible chaos, Jesus is for you. Neither one of those can save. The life of freedom and pleasure, the life of legalistic rules, only Jesus can save. He's saying call on him. Call on him and you will find life. And so this leads to the kind of final challenge that Jesus gives in the end. As the life-giving king, he calls us to live out what he's been doing. There's this funny little phrase that we're going to end with, and then next week we'll pick it back up because it's going to kind of launch into a whole new section. So it's a transitional section in verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so some of the outsiders, right? The non-Jews, the bad people, so to speak. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Uh, this is really kind of funny, a little, I just, it's like comedic, kind of like these guys wanted to see Jesus, so they came and talked to this one guy because he was from this other place, which was near this other town. And so the guy from the other place near the other town went to tell his friend, and then his friend took him, and they both went to tell Jesus. Okay? You following that? And here's the answer. Here's the answer that Jesus gives. You ready? People want to see you, Jesus. Now, I would be thinking Jesus would be like, all right, bring him, grab a Sharpie marker, and I'll sign a parchment and, you know, give him an autograph, right? But that's not what Jesus does. Look at this. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. If you've been reading the Gospel of John with us, this is a big theme. The hour has come. My time has not yet come. Last week, he's like, there's so many hours in the day. We work until we can't work anymore, and then we're done. He's like, all right, it's done done. The hour has come. It is time for me to die. And that time for him to die is the way he is glorified. That's the way he's lifted up. That's the way we see his kingship. You haven't really seen Jesus unless you've seen his death, unless you understand who he is through his death and burial for you, that he came as the sacrificial Passover lamb to take away your sin. And that's what he's saying. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Many of us are like seeds on a shelf. Jesus says, I'm a seed that was made to be buried, that was made to die. And in my death, there will be resurrection and life and fruit. And we're like, no, I don't trust you. I'm going to keep my seat on the shelf. I don't want to give my life away. I don't want to spend myself. He's saying, follow me, follow me. Look, re read what he says. So he says, unless the seed dies, unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What he's saying here is he's not just inviting you to follow in his suit and give your life away. He's warning you that if you don't, you're actually losing your life. By, by holding on to our lives, by being greedy, by being like Judas and saying, I don't trust God, he's holding out on me, we actually end up losing our life. Bitterness. It's, it's the drinking of poison. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He's saying the, the road to life is following me. And we can only do that because Jesus gave his life to us. Again, if you understand like Mary that Jesus was generous to you and he gave you life, you're going to be generous and give your life away. If you're not giving your life away, chances are you don't believe that God has been generous to you. And so you're holding back and you're trying to take care of yourself. To bring it back to motherhood, those who are mothers know that one of the great misunderstandings of motherhood is that you go into it for all the, the life that's going to be given to you, right? Um, this, this can look different in different ways in different houses, but you can kind of go into it thinking, man, I'm broken, I have a terrible life. If I just have a baby, that baby will just love me unconditionally and life will be perfect, right? When it's the opposite, right? You actually give your life. You have to give your life away to even teach a baby how to love, right? It's in you giving your life away to them that they become shaped into people that then can give their life away 
to other people. And we often get that completely backwards. We go into parenthood, or maybe you go as a teacher thinking, I'll, I'll become a teacher, and my students will just make my life meaningful. Or I'll be a commander, and my soldiers will just make my life awesome, right? Or I'll be a leader in some way. I was listening to podcasts last week, and it was talking about leadership and how often you work your way up through an organization, and you're like, well, when I get more leadership and when I get more influence, then I can do whatever I want. Then I can take life, right? Because I work my way up, giving my life away to the leader, and then when I become leader, I can take life. And Jesus says, no, to be king is to give your life away. To be king is to give your life away, and we serve a king who absolutely gave his life for us, which is what enables us to give our life away to others. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have given your life to us in Jesus. Um, help us with this, Father. There, there are particular ways where we're holding on, where we're scared. God, I just admit just pockets of my life. I know there are pockets of other people's lives here where they, they think we think I don't know if I can trust you with this, God. Help us to see that you are king and you are good and you're the king that, that gives us life so that we can share, so that we can follow you, so that we can be like you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.